This week on Retronauts. Now you're playing with power. Superpower. everybody. Welcome to another brand new episode of Retronauts. I am your host, Bob Mackey, for this one. And today's topic is the Super Nintendo's 25th anniversary. Before I start, let's go around the table and see who else is here. Let's start right here. Hey, it's me, Jeremy Parrish, doing nothing whatsoever to dispel the notion that Retronauts is incredibly Nintendo biased. Hey, uh, look, 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 at, look at history. We'll, we'll prove you wrong. Uh, actually, don't do that. Uh, who else is here today? Hey, this is Tim Turry. How's it going, guys? Tim, uh, this is his first time who on Retronauts. Who the hell is Tim Turry? Yes. Can you tell us who you are, Tim? I mean, everyone knows who we are, but uh, people might not know who you are. Sure. Well, one, you guys need to get better locks in your doors. Um, <laughs> That's but, true. Uh, yeah, I'm coming over from, from Capcom. Uh, just moved to San Francisco. I was formerly an editor at Game Informer uh, over in Minnesota uh, and uh, made the jump over to the publisher developer side and working on the Resident Evil series specifically, doing some social media, community stuff, all sorts of different things. But um, yeah, I obviously love video games and am coming coming with you guys, coming to you guys with a slightly different entry point to the Super Nintendo. That's uh, what I want to hear because yeah. we were we are if, if if you couldn't tell we are kind of we were baptized into the the Church of Nintendo I guess <laughs> in are a way coming from the European mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so specific. Well, if I was, I'd say I was coming from the Mega Drive side. But I I grew up in a firmly Sega household. I see. Uh, yes. So, mm-hmm. before we get to that, though, who else is here today? It's Ray Barnholt, also a video game company employee. Ray. <laughs> well, since uh, <laughs> yes, uh, since uh, Cab Bailey is here, I guess Tim is our is our, our Minnesotan for this episode. And I have, Minnesotan. To, ask, I have to ask Tim one thing: uh, there's a, there's an RPG series out there. It's very popular in Japan. It's not Final Fantasy. Can you name that RPG series? Are you talking about? Dragon Quest? Exactly. That's <laughs> yeah. what I wanted to hear. Dragon Quest. I'm sorry. I wanted to pick on a Minnesotan accent. Dra- Dra- Dragon. Dragon. Yes, yes. Okay. I've heard that it's not pronounced Magnum or Bag. But is uh, it Mario or Mario? Uh, well, it's Mario. I'm not a monster. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to pick on you, Tim. I just wanted to do like the sort of like the blood test and the thing to see how Minnesotan you really were. That's right. And you passed. Is, that, is that why I am tied down to this couch right now? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, we're not. Uh, your bloodline end, ends here. We're against <laughs> Minnesotans. But um, yes. So I wanted to point out something interesting to me, at least today. Uh, my, my, my voice was squeaking because I'm so excited, <laughs> is that uh, a little over five years after this episode posts, um, before this episode posts, I started on Retronauts. Uh, Jeremy approached me in a dark alley, and he uh, he shoved the briefcase at me. He's like, you're in charge now, and, and he fled. But uh, that's not actually what happened. But that's, I wish. My, that would be cool. Yeah, it would have been cool. Come on, Jeremy. Uh, but I actually started at Retronauts over five years ago doing an episode on the SNES back when it was the 20th anniversary. Uh, and, <laughs> and now I'm back doing the 25th anniversary. And... Uh-oh. And I started Uh-oh. on Retronauts over 10 years ago <laughs> when Jeremy also pulled me into a dark alley. Oh, man. <laughs> and we did uh, episode zero of Retronauts, which included a discussion about the Super NES's uh, 15th wow. anniversary. God. Wow. So we are just... I wanted to be known that I had nothing to do with the development of this episode and, in <laughs> fact, said I'm not doing a Super NES episode. Actually, Jeremy, you Actually, asked... Actually, what I said was you asked there is no this. way in hell 
that I'm doing a super okay. episode. But that's why you wanted me to do it, right? Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to say, like, I'm at the point of my career in which um, I, maybe Jeremy can reflect on this. Like, what do you do? Like, you've, ri- you've written all your retrospectives and then the next milestone comes along. What do you do with your life then? Do you just start repeating yourself? Because I think I'm going to start doing that. Uh, I start making, like, very detailed videos about the, the libraries okay. of these games. Maybe I need it's to start doing that. It's a bad idea. No, or maybe, do maybe it's Ray's it. turn to, to uh, lead Retronauts. What do you think, Ray? Uh, sure. How much you pay? Uh, we'll, get, we'll get to you later on that. <laughs> We're still waiting for paychecks. <laughs> you, get, you get a free meal occasionally. Yes. Okay. Uh, so sorry for all the inside stuff, Tim. We, we, I just wanted to bring that up. And uh, I, I love doing Retronauts. I'm happy to have been doing it this long. And hopefully we can do it for another five years. And until I find some protege uh, to meet in a dark alley and give him all the responsibility. Yes, yes. No, so, it's, um, it's great. You guys can never, ever, ever stop. No, uh, no. <laughs> I found out this, I, is, this is the one thing that I do that people actually like uh, in, in mass quantities. So I, I can't stop doing it. Basically, once yeah. you figure that out, once you crack I, that nut. I need, to, I need to make a confession here, though. Uh-oh. I have no memory of either of those episodes. You were on uh, – you were on – I don't – I remember talking about Metroid 2 on yes. episode zero. Yeah. Jeremy, uh, Jeremy and I were just talking about the Resident Evil episode, which you were on – and I, because I obviously love Resident Evil. I was like, I don't think I was there for that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you but were. I was. You were on that Retro Nuts uh, episode that I started with. I think it was Live 17. And I went back to listen to it. And it's not as um, awkward as I assumed it would be. I think we'd all just seem very tired. It, it also, we all sound like like Simpsons season one almost. Like, <laughs> hey, boy, we're going to talk about the Super <sighs> Nintendo. That's a perfect analogy. Oh my <laughs> and God. the one I was on just disappeared, so. Yeah, Retronaut Zero is I got, hidden. I got in the, the luck of the draw. It's hidden in the one-up vault somewhere. We have to yeah. crack it open, and uh, we'll ask IGN about that later. But, I tried to look. I, Jeremy, <laughs> I couldn't find it. So. <laughs> but today's topic is not my fifth anniversary with Retronauts. It's a Super Nintendo's 25th anniversary, and uh, it's actually a little bit older than that in Japan. It launched November 21st, 1990 in Japan, and we didn't get it until uh, almost a year later, August 23rd, 1991 in America. And this episode should be launching around that 25th anniversary and I think, I mean, we were always used to a, a huge gulf in time between Japanese and American releases. But I think in this case, it, it was really because the Super Nintendo was not ready to launch in Japan. There were two games at launch. They just needed something to fight the Mega Drive, which was yeah. not hugely successful. But still, it was like the bleeding edge of the console gaming, right? Yeah, I mean, that was um, <clears throat> it was kind of a, a precursor to the Dreamcast Japanese launch. Where mm. it was just like, why, why did you release it already? You should have waited. Yeah, I mean... Our, our launch lineup was still very small, but all Japan got was Super Mario World and F-Zero. Surprisingly, not a Mahjong game uh, or like an, <laughs> yeah. a version of Othello, which isn't that what you – I mean right. – Yeah, Gomoku. Aren't there a lot of those usually for Japanese systems? Like, okay, usually here's your Go game. Early. Yeah, yeah, yeah starting so. with the Famicom, uh, like the, the fourth and fifth games released for Famicom. I was just writing about this this morning mm. were Gomoku, Renju, and Mahjong. So I assume there was some so. like celebrity licensed Go game before we got the Super Nintendo. But what's important to <laughs> note, uh, we'll get into this, the system and the specifics and whatever later. But the, as far as the launch goes, ours was pretty good, I think, in terms of showing off what the system could do. And uh, we got Super Mario World, of course. We did an entire episode on that. Please look it up. Um, F-Zero and... Uh, Pilot Wings, SimCity, and uh, Gradius Three. Those that was our launch lineup. And Gradius Three maybe not so good at showing off what the system could do, or maybe not good <laughs> at showing what the system could do well. It could show, yeah, yeah. showing like, off the weaknesses of the system. Yeah, if anything, it helped me play uh, Gradius because I was like, oh, this slowdown is a feature, right? Because right. uh, <laughs> this game runs at half speed. I can yeah. play this. I can uh-huh. do this. I don't need a slow mo controller. And um, 
From the beginning, I think uh, the Super Nintendo was really showing how different it was from the Genesis, and it was showing the direction Nintendo was going. Sega was still focused on arcade hardware, too. And I think the Genesis, a lot of it was like, we're going to give you arcade experiences. And the Super Nintendo, I think, was like, we'll give you experiences you can only have here or maybe on the PC. So I feel like things like Pilot Wings and SimCity, they were very PC-oriented experiences, but kind of um, simplified, made a little more easier to handle for a console. Uh, does there, do people agree with me on this? I feel like they were going for a different kind of approach than just the arcade. Yeah, I mean, how much do we really want to talk about what was inside these systems? Um, I, mean, I think that that's pretty telling. That's our next topic. I just kind of wanted to go over just the general launch first. But, okay. um, yeah, but I mean... Um, in terms of sales, I don't want to cover that. Uh, it's funny when you look at these Nintendo systems where uh, the NES had f- 61. Uh, I'm sorry, no, the NES, yeah, sorry, NES had 61.91 million. The Super Nintendo had 49.1 million, and then I jumped ahead to the Wii just to see the difference, and the Wii had 101.52 million. Well, <laughs> so, Nintendo Nintendo sales for consoles, like install bases, were on a progressive gradually downward slope. It's like yeah. each system sold yeah. about two thirds as much as the previous one until Wii suddenly like sold what? Three or four times what the GameCube did. Yes, the GameCube and was probably like thirty million. I'm guessing something like that. And then, yeah, actually, if you look at Wii U's install base, it actually follows that curve. Like Wii is this bizarre anomaly yeah. sticking out in the middle, but yeah. <laughs> but it's actually like that downward slope just continues. So the Wii was an anomaly, but I, th- I thought it was interesting to see like just how. Um, how, how people were gradually backing away from games as they became more complicated. But we can't talk about the hardware. I, I don't think that's true. I think there was just more competition for Nintendo. That could be it, too. Um, yeah. I mean, the the NES sold 60 million units, and it was like 90% of the install base in Japan and in America. Um, it wasn't as strong in Europe, but yeah. like – that was pretty much the the, the like that sales uh, that that sales figure was basically what the U.S. and Japanese markets could bear at that point. Right. Yeah. Whereas if you look at the 16-bit market, you had um, a pretty even split between Super NES and Genesis. So you have at least in the U.S. and also in Europe. So you know you have like 60 million game systems installed in the 8-bit era, like 65 million maybe. And then in the 8-bit era, it's more like 80 or 90 million. Mm. So games were actually growing. It's just that Nintendo didn't own nearly the same slice of the pie right. as they had in the 8-bit era. I, I was kind of using anec- anecdotal evidence because I feel like growing up as a kid, and we talked about this on the Zelda episode where uh, Zelda was, in my perspective, the dad game. It was like all the dads were playing Zelda. And I felt like everyone's parents were playing the NES. But when the SNES came out, I feel like that's when parents of my generation uh, or my parents uh, and other people's parents really just stopped playing video games. I don't know if it was the controller that was too intimidating. I think that was a huge part of it for my mom. Like, she played NES games. But when you're confronted with this thing with, like, two times the number of buttons, you could be like, okay, I'm done. Like, Plus shoulder things. Yeah, The yeah. shoulder buttons what, were maybe, what like... What were those even? They're yeah. the most underutilized buttons, I yes. think, in, like, all video game history. No one knew what to do with those until Final Fantasy VI, I want to say, where, yeah. like, people were like, oh... Toggle between characters and menus. Not that sure. makes sense. Not even Final Fantasy IV figured that out. But we'll talk about the hardware now. It's a good. That's a good uh, segue. So this is well, designed by Masayuki Uemura. Yes, Jeremy, you talked to him. I did. What, what did you talk to him about? Just the NES. The NES. Okay. Right. I, I wish I had had time to talk to him about uh, Super NES because that's much less of a uh, an explored area. I of agree. His history. Yeah. But I was like specifically there to talk about the NES's 30th anniversary, so mm-hmm. I didn't have the opportunity. But yeah. Um, yeah, he was Nintendo R&D 3 
uh, one of the development, like hardware development people, he had worked with uh, Sharp before he came to Nintendo. And his relationship with Sharp and uh, I want to say uh, Mitsubishi, I can't remember exactly, uh, or Hitachi, I don't know. Um, anyway, his <laughs> relationship um, was really instrumental in making the NES happen, the Famicom hardware. Right. Um, and do you know if... Uh did did he design the American versions of the NES and Super no, NES? No, I, I mean didn't those think so. those were industrial no. designers. He yeah. was a he was an engineer. He designed the interiors, Got the it. insides, and you know it's it's someone else's job to put together the cases, the exteriors. I think the NES was div- like the the case design was, and maybe for the Super NES was done in America. I know okay. it was yeah. a. <clears throat> Both you, that, you might know the names of the uh, person who Lance Barr them. was the designer. Okay. That's right. He drew yeah. up the designs for both. I was on of tip those. of my tongue. So, yeah, he, looking, was, he was that NOA. Yeah. Looking back aesthetically, like, do you guys think that the NES or the SNES was? Which one do you think was more like aesthetically pleasing? I would say SNES for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The Super NES? No, I like. I, I hate so, the design of that console. I think yeah. it's garbage. I, I liked I liked the the you, you, you NES. Kind of, you have to step back and say I love them both equally. Yeah, <laughs> right. Sorry, you can't really my children, that. my <laughs> children. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I mean I I loved the Super NES hardware and the game experiences, yeah. but I mean from the very beginning I was like this console looks really gross. I, I thought that like mm-hmm. ugly the the. the Purple on gray was like a really cool contrast that I hadn't considered before. But the then colors were fine. I like the colors a lot. Yeah, there's something about like the NES and the mystery of opening up, you know, a little trap door and your yeah. game goes away in there. And and that so like, is, is it a treasure or is it a mimic? Yeah, will it attack <laughs> or will it, will it turn on? I'm glad you brought that up because uh, the Famicom, as we all know, was top loading. The NES was more of a VCR type thing to fool people into thinking it wasn't a video game system. But unfortunately, it also fooled people into thinking it was a safe surface to set their drinks. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, that's yeah. Yeah, I can it, see a lot of problems happening around. there. But, I mean, there were a lot of problems with NES models because of the... I forget what would happen. Zero with, insertion force. Exactly. <clears throat> the so, pins would get bent. So, luckily, they went uh, for the American version of the uh, Super Famicom. They they stuck with the top loading. But so they, didn't, have they didn't just keep the Japanese and European design, which was very clean and elegant. I, I love the Super Famicom. It's one of my favorite consoles. It's, it's a really so nice sleek. looking system. And the American yeah. version is just like... It's just over-designed. It looks, it looks kind of like a Transformer character or something. It's going to yeah, turn but like a from car. the bad part of Transformers yeah. after they stopped using die-cast metal, <laughs> it's like I, it's, it's like a Sharp Decon. I loved all the like the the, the pre-release sort of chatter about that because it's like everybody sort of expected them to redesign it for America. It's like it wasn't. It would just seemed like such a such a foregone conclusion to like the media and stuff. It's like, well, when Nintendo announces the new version, the new redesign of it, then we'll see when it also comes out in America. It's like what? So, no. <laughs> I, I do want to kind of step back a minute to uh, where we were talking about Masayuki Masayuki Uemura, um, because I think like the decisions they made in terms of what's inside the Super NES. Uh, you were you were talking earlier about like what the Genesis aspired to do, what the Super NES aspired mm-hmm. to do. I think looking at the the chips and the the like the the underpinnings, the, like the, just the basic hardware inside, is really telling for Sega and. Uh, uh, Nintendo's different, you know, respective approaches. Yeah, I mean, the the Genesis chip was sort of like an off the shelf kind of like the Genesis. Chip. The Genesis chip was a sixty eight hundred, yeah. um, a Motorola. It was the same thing that powered the Amiga. It was the same thing yeah. that powered the Macintosh, and more, most importantly, it was the same thing that powered a lot of arcade boards. Was so the... it was a natural conversion, like from arcades to Genesis. Sega I... said, "Let's make a uh, like a you know." basically an arcade machine for our homes. I didn't do a lot of research into the actual chips within the machine. Or were they proprietary designed by Nintendo? I know the, the sound chip was um, uh, designed by Sony. So the um, the Super NES chip is actually 
uh, sort of like the next evolution of the chip inside the Famicom, the okay. NES. Uh, I can't remember what the name of the chip is. It's like it's a RISC, whatever, it's, No, it's, it's not uh, a RISC. It's, okay. um, it's the 6502. Okay. And in, in the Famicom. Right, yeah, in the, in the Famicom. In, yeah. But then the, oh, the, the Super NES is like the next the next evolution of right. that. It's so, another, it's another like... Uh, it's basically proprietary. It yeah. was based on a on a thing, but it was had right. Enough. It's it's modified. They somewhat. took some things out that kind of mm-hmm. hampered it, and, but it was there. But but basically, they went. I, I I've read that they went with that specific chip because it did have backward compatibility with the. Okay, NES. yeah, that was planned. And a big part of the plan was to make you know the system backward compatible, but then yeah. they dropped it because Nintendo always looks at hardware and says, "How can we make this inexpensive for the mm-hmm. consumers?" And they said maybe supporting an old system is not essential. And they they would figure out how to make backward compatibility possible later, like with the the DS, you know, to make it you know not a, a, an added expense yeah. to the system. Well, the Boy, did they get the, good at that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, like the Wii giving us GameCube compatibility felt like a like a luxury or like a little gift. Well, I mean, they yeah. use the same philosophy there. Um, you know, the the GameCube. Uh, processor, like you know, they, the 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 joke was that yeah, was two, of that. <laughs> two GameCube processors duct taped together. Yeah. Well, no, that's Essentially true. It was true. It was, and the same thing for the Wii U. It's like it's these same families just expanded. Like the PS2 sound chip was emulating PS1 or something crazy like that, right? Uh, or... The the I/O controller okay, was yeah. it was a PS1 processor. It wasn't emulating. It right. was like the same chip. Exactly right. Um, so. Nintendo tried to do that with with the uh, the Super NES, but I think yeah. they decided that having like an extra console port, you know, for a cartridge was a need a needless expense. They could do that with Wii and with Wii U because you're using discs and like you put a disc into the disc drive and the disc drive takes it and it, you know there's no there's yeah. no worry about pinouts or anything like that. It's very weird. They didn't seem to really uh, figure it out, so they just kind of abandoned it because in like 1988 they showed the Super Famicom and they also said this is what we're going to do with the Famicom as well. We're going to make a redesigned Famicom that is also going to be like an adapter for the Super Famicom. <laughs> Play the old games, it, it's, but that was abandoned, and then you know, two years later, it's so yeah. weird because a lot of these things they're going to be talking about are taking place in the late '80s. It feels so strange that this is a product of the late '80s instead of I, I, I associate yeah. this so much with the '90s. Of yeah. course, it was in development before then, but this is just such the '90s console for me that uh, it's weird that it goes back to '88. You know? Yeah. So I, I think you know the choice to go with um, kind of like a, a system, a chip in the sort of the NES lineage. Um, had a big part in in the Super Famicom, Super NES hardware being clocked really slowly, and mm-hmm. that was that was a big drawback, especially for initial software. Was that the the chip was actually running at like half the speed of the Genesis chip, yeah. but they you know that that also began sort of the argument that it's not pure. Uh, processor speeds that makes the difference. They they added a lot of extra functions and a lot of uh, like built-in capabilities. More to the video Super RAM NES. and things like that. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, like the the hardware mode functions and things like that. Um, there were just lots of things like expanded color capabilities. The Genesis can have what sixty four colors on screen, and the Super NES is thousands. Um, its palette is it's thousands. Its palette is thousands, yeah. but it can have hundreds at a time. 256, yeah, I yeah, believe. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah, as opposed right. to what, 64 in the Genesis, something like that? Right, there's yeah. 64 on screen with Genesis, and I think it had a color palette of, I want to say, yeah. it might have been 256. It might have been like 1024. Uh, sure. But yeah. anyway, it was like a much much Huge more, difference. much expanded, a greatly expanded palette of, of colors. Mm-hmm. And it had, you know, the hardware modes. It had a, a lot of extra features that um, the Genesis didn't. So, you know, right out of the gate, it could do things that the Genesis couldn't. 
but the Genesis could also do things that the Super NES couldn't. And so you had, you know, like you were saying, like two systems that really spoke to different aspirations. Nintendo mm-hmm. was not about uh, arcade experiences and the the Super NES hardware reflects that. It can do really cool things, but super fast-paced games is really not one of them. You don't, you don't see a lot of... Uh, like really intense action games. There were some, but you don't see a lot of them yeah, on Super NES. Yeah. I mean, Contra 3 was an early one, but it yeah, wasn't Yeah, but I mean, like, even that's a yeah. pretty pretty methodically paced game. Like, mm-hmm. Compared to some like some of the treasure games that came out in Genesis, yeah. which yeah. felt like they were really frantic. And, yeah, 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 yeah. SNES music is good. There's a lot of really bad farty stuff, uh, as farty as Genesis music could get. Yeah, but um, yeah. this is an eight-channel AD PCM audio chip designed by Ken Kutaragi of Sony fame. And what happened here was um, uh, Kutaragi developed the chip because his daughter took a liking to the Famicom, and he's like, "Oh, these video games could be going somewhere." And uh, his superiors at Sony wanted nothing to do with it. But I guess his mentor, who was the guy who helped make CDs happen, make them you know a thing that we all use or used to, uh, he allowed him to develop this uh, Super Famicom sound chip. And that's essentially where the partnership began in 1988 with Sony and Nintendo. That would eventually dissolve in a terrible way and eventually would create the PlayStation. We'll get to that later. But that's where the sound chip comes from, Ken Kutaragi. And it, it I mean, some of the best music in console gaming pre-Redbook Audio was produced on the SNES. And it's so great to go open an emulator and you can you can turn all those channels on and off individually and hear every instrument and just mm-hmm. see how how rich things like the Final Fantasy 3 so music slap oh, yeah. yeah so much slap bass yeah I'm but thinking it's, of, it's, uh, the yeah. Super NES chip the uh, the audio chip is crazy because the Super NES didn't have like wave synthesis it didn't create bleeps and boops right it couldn't do that it's I mean all... you could probably program the system to make those sounds but that's not how the sound chip worked is it all samples it, it, it is samples okay. like, like sound fonts and you can either I, I don't know if the system had them built in. I don't think it did. I think Nintendo would like provide game, you with like generic, like a generic yeah, I think, font but library. You, like that had to be part of your your cartridge. Yeah, like it didn't have that built in. But that was what the the chip could do was it could play those samples and create like sound fonts. That's why, it. like, I think eight megs of Earthbound's twenty four megs is just the audio data mm-hmm. because it's all the things that it's sampling. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, well, yeah. megabits. By the way, that soundtrack is huge too. Yeah, like, I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up with a Super Nintendo. I actually played Earthbound for the first time. Just started it earlier this year. Oh, awesome. And, uh, and it's rad, but that soundtrack is massive. It's got to hold all those Beatles clips. You that's know? right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's super funky too. But yeah. uh, it's it's also one thing I love about Super Nintendo games. Like I love video game music in general, um, but it's just every game – like the Super Nintendo doesn't feel like it has like a unified sound, I think, because of that sampling compared to the Genesis, it's which more, is – It's more an atmosphere that unifies yeah. it. There is, there is yeah. this kind of like scratchy, slightly distorted, you know, low, low – um, 
low speed sampling quality to it. So everything's a little bit fuzzy. It's like a kind of a muffled reverby kind of. Right. I, I I don't know music terminology. And you know the, the, but... the, the, the developers that did use Nintendo's sort of. Uh, you know, they're just their, like, sample libraries. You do hear a lot of that slap bass. Like, it's like Seinfeld, the video game. But then, you know, other... Which would be awesome on Super NES because of that. Yeah, exactly. Well, Jerry did have a copy of SNES SimCity in his in his living room. That's been discovered. But, you know, developers who took the time to create their own sound images for the system could have games that sounded like nothing else. Yeah. Like, you know, Earthbound is the obvious example, but... Yeah. Six dogs barking jingle bells. You could do that on the yep. SNES. No one did though. So I you, feel like you know, the Genesis is like the ACDC Sox concert. The, the Genesis is ACDC, and like the Super NES is like the weird art installation at the museum you go to see, and you put <laughs> on the headphones. And it's just like, it's like a, a Philip Glass exhibit or yeah, something. Yeah, it's like weird yeah. tweaks of orchestra, orchestrated music. Oh, sorry, Tim, did you have something to say? Well, you said it was it was eight out of uh, twenty four uh, megs for Earthbound soundtrack. Or, yeah, or, it was like a third of the cartridge space. Yeah. How how much of the cartridge space in Turtles in Time was dedicated to just orchestra hits? Oh, I'm curious. Jeez. <laughs> it was probably just the same hit, but yeah, man, yeah. orchestra hits were all over yeah. early '90s stuff. Yeah, it was beautiful. Mario Payne, you could just make a song out of all orchestra hits. Yes. Take take, uh, <laughs> take down right. CNC Music Factory because <laughs> they they love it's that all, stuff. Yeah, that's the thing. It's all on display in Mario Paint too. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have the full. You can make your dogs barking jingle bells. Of course, yeah. finally. So uh, let's go to the controller. We mentioned it briefly. Um, former buttons on the NES, and this is a very important like revolution in controller dumb. In that it was a lot more ergonomic than what we were used to holding, like just like a like a rectangular slab. Yes. And I feel like uh, the labeling of the button. X, Y, L, and R, they were there for like, you know, obviously, you know, the X and Y axes and whatever, but I feel like they were there to suggest the idea of like 3D-ness and like suggest the idea of futuris- futurism or whatever. Yeah. And, and yeah, um, they used to be ABCD. Oh, that's right. Okay, yeah. yeah. And what I really love is the uh, Super Famicom, the splash of color where it's red, blue, green, and yellow. And you'll see that motif in a lot of games, but it's not reflected on the controller that you're holding at home with the with the muted purples. But I love that, and I also love how the A and B buttons are rounded and the X and Y buttons have mm-hmm. little divots in them, which the Wii did not do with their classic controller, and they don't do with any of their controllers now, which yeah, I hate. pretty much just the American Super NES controller. Oh, yeah, the Super the Famicom one did not have that no. feature. That's right. I had an ASCII pad that did not do that. But, um, yeah. What did you guys think of the controller when you first saw it? Because it, I was only, I was nine to be fair, but I was like, oh my God, all these buttons. Like, what what can I do with these buttons? Even though they didn't use most of the buttons for the most part in the beginning. I mean, right. somebody jump in here. I want to know uh, what you I think. I was like, oh yeah, finally, you know, we're in the future, more buttons. Because there were a lot of NES games that really needed more buttons. Uh, what was it? Batman, Sunsoft's yeah. Batman. Like, there were some weapons. There was weapons that were mapped to the select button. That's yeah. not fun. I mean, I love Mike Tyson's punch out, but hitting start to throw an uppercut right. always felt weird to me. It's kind of yeah. gross. Yeah. I, yeah. It, like, similarly, uh, about hitting start, you know, in fighting games on Genesis, uh, you know, for Street Fighter to switch between, you know, punches and kicks. Uh, and having those shoulder yes. buttons, I think, on the Super Nintendo always made me really jealous growing up of my friends oh, yeah, that right. had, had those extra buttons. I think. Well. At least you weren't playing the PC introverted. That's fair. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, one thing I loved uh, specifically growing up playing a lot of platformers is the the Super Nintendo controller is just so much more compact. I feel like the D-pad is less muddy than the the Genesis uh, Mm -hmm. D-pad, even though the Genesis controller was, like, big and comfy. It was like a Cadillac, uh, especially those first ones. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, but I don't like driving Cadillacs. It's It's too big. And I think that's why, you know, it's a beautiful world we live in where you can, you know, play... Gen- uh, Sonic with a with a Super Nintendo controller if you want you know yeah. it feels sacrilegious but it is 
the better controller. To be honest, I do a lot of emulation stuff, and regardless of what old console I'm emulating, I use my SNES USB controller because I love how it feels. It's got the divots in the buttons, and I can play NES games on that fine without having to, like, freak out over, oh, there's no A and B or whatever, you know, but uh, at least not in the place where it should be. Um, The Super NES controller has always been my favorite classic controller. I I feel like it is kind of the gold standard of of game controllers. Because even Nintendo went back and recreated the the, the NES controller, right, with a variant that was rounded. That's right, yeah, the dog bone kind of look to it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, they obviously realized this is way better than having, you know, sharp corners dig into your palms. And they finally made it a top loader after, like, I think that was like a 1994 release or something like that. 1993, yeah, Yeah. really late. And I mean, uh, I don't want to go over every tiny bit of detail, but the SNES would eventually be modified and re-released. And the final version looks a lot like a Super Famicom. Um, it has the same colors as the SNES, but it's not as yeah, boxy. Same shape. Yeah, not same shape in Japan. So doesn't have like the rectangular protrusions that the mm-hmm. original SNES one did. Yeah, or the weird like the wavy skirt. The <laughs> yeah, the yeah. that's that's weird. That's actually the one that I I know. The, oh, the, okay. the tiny the tiny little one, right? Yeah. Like Were those in short supply or hard to find? I, I kind of want one, but... I, uh, I remember it was packaged not... with Link to the Past, and it was $50. Yeah, they bundled mm. it like eight times. Wow, yeah. okay. They still sell for like $40, $50 okay. just for the, the system. And they're worth getting because if you get the one that has the single chip uh, like variant, you have to open it up and see. But that one is capable of being modded to do RGB output. So I see, it's okay. like the best possible video signal you can get from your Super NES. So... Um, yeah, those, those are that's what I use for doing my like Game Boy. Oh, so you have one stuff. of those? Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah, it's RGB modded, and someone put a little purple light in it, which is pointless, but um, <laughs> but like it it outputs great video, like it's beautiful. So uh, I guess you could conceivably could you conceivably play a Famicom game in an NES if you like like took it apart and shoved the ROM into the SNES, or did they not fit? Um, wait, no, NES, no. Famicom? Yeah. No, they have they have different pinouts. Okay, I thought so. There's a different number of ch- uh, pins on the chips, so you have to get an adapter. So conceivably, uh, you can play Super Famicom games on your Super Nintendo. The copy protection in this case is two oh, yeah. hard plastic tabs yeah. that are inside the little slot, and it will prevent an, a Super Famicom game from hitting <clears throat> the, uh, the, the connectors. Yeah, the, the carts are slightly differently shaped. NES is kind of like um, a rectangle. If you look at it from the top, and then the edges are rounded. Yeah. But, uh, Famicom is more it's like, like a fingernail kind of, shape. Yeah, yeah, it's got kind of like a half moon element to it, yeah. so it can fit easily into the Super NES slot, and, and vice versa. But it, it has these little tabs that are notched, not just cut out in in one system and not the other. But all you have to do is open up the the uh, the flap on the Super NES uh, hardware, the cartridge port, and take a needle nose plier and just yeah, just I, I, those wrench off. them out of there. I, I yeah. remember doing that because I got a I got a copy of Rockman and Forte. I think, I think uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, well, I don't need to know Japanese to play this, you know, because <laughs> it was Mega Man and Bass is what it was, and just just wrenching those, feeling uh, terrible, <laughs> feeling terrible, like I was committing well, some crime against my Super Nintendo. I'm like, uh, please work. And a then, Dremel is more efficient. I recommend if you uh, have one of those around the house, well, use that. I was like 11. So. <laughs> yeah, fancy. It's like it's no, like you're pulling out wisdom teeth or something. Yeah, yeah. I'm just lazy. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're going to get into some minutiae here. And one thing I noticed is that the older cartridges are a lot fatter. Uh, they, they were designed so the SNES would lock them in. When you hit the power, when you slid yeah. it on, it would like lock the cartridge in. But I feel like um, there was a danger in pulling a, a cartridge out that was being played because you're pulling on the guts of the system. So eventually they got rid of that and they made the system gently, uh, sorry, the cartridges gently slope inward. There was not that rectangular protrusion that the, the system would grab. Hmm, I hadn't noticed that. Did yeah. Nintendo 
Nintendo not give us a, a, a lot of credit in the U.S.? Because, I mean, the Game Boy locked in the cartridge when you turn well, on that, power. That kind of makes sense because you don't want your system to lose your game. I mean, that, yeah. that's true. But the Nintendo, you and that, that's also the Japanese. The Japanese Game Boy has that too. It does. Okay, fair enough. You'll probably remember this, Jeremy. Uh, SNES games used to come with these little yep. like I've cartridge got a bunch of those just floating around. Yeah, they stopped doing that when they redesigned the cartridges. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're yeah. they're useless because you can't just like line your games up because True. you have these little yeah. bases for them, and so everything is like. Awkward they're and not practical, but I do think they're cute. They're like little shoes for you your cartridges to wear. Okay, <laughs> you guys you. all put those on your favorite games, right? Oh, of course, like, yeah. I was like, Earthbound. No, I put them in a drawer and uh, never touched them. <laughs> I was like, Earthbound, you didn't ship with one, but you deserve those one. Those were like gold stars for my games, yeah. basically. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the, yeah, that happened around 93, and I remember the first game I got that had that was Bubsy. Oh, wow. It's like, oh, they, they changed the cartridge. Did it deserve what it? What could possibly go wrong? Uh, I'm done. I'm sorry. Bubsy won. <laughs> So uh, I did want to dispel a myth that I think has been pretty well dispelled, but a lot of people still believe in it. They they assume that if their SNES turns yellow, the SNES came out when a lot more people were smoking in America. And I think the general myth is like, oh, the smoking turned it yellow, but it was actually a type of fire retardant plastic that was made. ABS plastic. Yeah. What's that, ABS plastic? So that yellowed at a faster rate at oxidized or something like that, I believe. So the they didn't have the mixture right. So they added a chemical for the flame retardant stuff yeah. to the ABS plastic, but... They didn't get the ratio right, so I mean, having they, a lot of these early systems will yellow faster than some of the later. Exactly. I mean, having worked at a GameStop, uh, I, I realize things can turn yellow if people smoke too much, and it's disgusting. But uh, this yeah. is a different thing. Uh, it's possible yours is yellow because your parents smoked or whatever. But in, in, mo- in most cases, it is that ABS plastic that's been yellowing over time. Yeah, and people have figured out like a formula you can use to apply to, right. to whiten up your system. But apparently, yeah. it makes the plastic really brittle. So I don't know that it's a good yeah, idea. Yeah, retrobite is what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah it, it's basically yeah, it's, it's extremely eating, caustic. It's eating and, away layers of the yeah. plastic, which is yeah, not what you really want in the end. So we talked about uh, the backwards compatibility being on the table, and I feel like consumers had a real crisis about this because, I mean, in Japan and kind of in America as well by this point, we did have sequel systems, but this was the first, I feel like, real explicit sequel console where Master Drive to Genesis, you could be a consumer and be like, those are unrelated. Super Nintendo to Nintendo. Yeah, but Nintendo. the thing is, Genesis had an adapter yeah. you could buy to put the Mega Drive in. That's yeah. true. I, mean, I think that and was... The, the Mega Drive, or the... the Sorry, Master System games in there, and the uh, the Genesis actually used the the Master System's controller as like its sound chip. Right. So so weird. It's bizarre. And I think so that, they, I mean, they, they kind of did the same thing that Nintendo tried to do and did it more successfully. There was precedent for that, Jeremy. I agree with you. But the market share of the Master System was so small that no one cared. Oh, yeah. And yes, everyone had one. And I think it was assumed that like, oh, I'll play my old games on this. And if you watch, and we did this in our Nintendo Mania episode that caused some scandal on Retronauts three years ago. I will not talk about that. John Stossel's <laughs> the devil. Also, but um, I do want to say that, um, yeah, there was a lot of consumer uh, anxiety over this like oh the Japanese are ripping us off like why can't I play it's, my old games in this like come on Nintendo this yeah. is a ripoff but I feel like we weren't used to this cycle yet it was so crazy to me I think I think we're gonna need some people uh, older than us to chime in because like I'm wondering like was there as much of a firestorm about it over like the Atari 5800 or 5200 excuse me compared yeah to I mean Tim do you, do you have any experience with this sort of uh, the sort of uh, response to uh, Super Nintendo I did see it a lot amongst parents luckily my parents were uh, 
I don't know if they were just wanted to spoil me or they may be more tech savvy or they my, my dad played video games so he knew like oh this is a better looking thing but um like what was your experience yeah just anecdotally I, I've done a lot of trying to go back and unpack my childhood to find out why I ended up with the Genesis and Master System instead of a Nintendo and Super Nintendo yeah talking to my mom about her you know Christmas shopping per- decisions and all that what were you thinking uh, how yeah, did you just like, oh, yeah <laughs> ruined me it's like look at these these images look at Mega Man X look look at there's this bo- there's there's mid bosses in this Wait, Mega one. Man X I thought it was Mega Man 10 uh, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. but trying to figure that out uh, a huge selling point in talking to my mom about this was that yeah you get this adapter you can play the old games that we bought you and they won't just collect dust somewhere mm. so you can still play your Alex yeah. kids and your Shinobi and stuff and I do remember those childhood sales pitches you like pull your parents into a room like listen up guys yep. I got a deal for you right and so it was you know I didn't choose that I didn't choose a Genesis over a Super Nintendo I was too young to make those those decisions but uh, that I know that having some sort of backwards compatibility you know sold to my mom was a big mm. value for for the family you know this is a good this is a good time to get into where we first met the Super Nintendo and when we fell in love with it uh, for me I think I brought up in the past a few times that I, I went with the TurboGrafx-16 first because their marketing was just really effective they were literally sending cassette tapes to my house and showing off <laughs> like oh the system is so great and it was also uh, relatively affordable it came with a few free games it came with Bonk's Revenge and I got that for my 10th birthday but by the next Christmas I really wanted a Super Nintendo and Thankfully, my parents were, uh, I guess, interested in spoiling me, and I did, and I kind of just shoved my TurboGrafx-16 away forever. I think it was actually not functioning at that point. It didn't last very long. encounter the Super Nintendo, were you on board from the beginning from like fuzzy pictures of Mario World and EGM? I mean, I, well, I, I encountered it from the beginning in Nintendo Power, so oh, you're right. of course I, I followed the hype and was like, yeah. <laughs> um, the first time I ever actually played the system was in a um, uh, PlayChoice 5, which was the 16-bit Super NES version of the PlayChoice 10. I don't know, that's that had, a, the Super System. Nintendo oh, Super, Super System. system. Yes. But it had five games, right? Not, yeah, not ten. Just yeah. didn't wasn't called Play Choice. Yeah, okay. So I played Super Mario World and was like, ah, it's amazing. I know <laughs> I've talked about this on an episode before. Right. Um, but yeah, I was I was totally on board. That's those it took funny me, oversized gamepads. Sorry. It took me like a year to save up enough money for it. But the first thing I bought with my first summer job's first paycheck was a Super NES, and uh, I rented a whole lot of games after that. I think all it took to convince me uh, was playing the kiosk at a JCPenney or whatever and seeing Mario uh, 1-1, Mario World 1-1, the big bullet bill, that's it. I'm, I'm, it's over. <laughs> this is what I want in my life right now. And that's all. basically all it took. I call it the shot, shot heard around the world, I guess, in terms of the console wars, that, that giant bullet bill. Ray, uh, uh, where did you encounter the SNES? Were you immediately in love with it? Uh, yeah. Like uh, Jeremy said, Nintendo Power had like a little news bit that showed like the second early version of it with red buttons and everything and then uh, for the rest of 1990 all the other magazines were covering the import uh, edition and just like yeah showing all the screens and stuff it's like oh god why can't I have like $300 to import this Uh, (laughs) until finally like a year later 
yeah, I finally got it pretty much at the launch period. Yeah, that uh, late summer, fall. And then uh, was cool in third grade for like a week. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happened, Ray? Uh, right back to bullying. Oh, sorry, Ray. <laughs> but now you're on top. I, yeah, well, I was the video game kid in school uh, for all that year. So, hmm. uh, yeah, no, it was great. So it's time to talk about chips now, and much like the Super, sorry, much like the Nintendo and the Famicom, instead of investing in add-ons, which they almost did, we'll get to that soon. But instead of investing in add-ons and other expensive accessories, Nintendo did the same uh, thing they did with the NES, and they were like, "Let's just put chips on that will, you know, aid in certain processes. They will make certain things happen." And uh, for the most part, this was a very smart strategy, even though it made some games kind of expensive. And I think the most famous chips of these are the Super FX and the Super FX2, mainly uh, Star Fox and Yoshi's Island. And I mean, say what you want about that original Star Fox, but it was a very head-turning experience. Um, That was considered inconceivable on a console, I think. Even if there were flight simulators and there were 3D games on PCs, that was a different world that we weren't necessarily in touch with. But seeing this happen, as primitive as it was, was an important move for Nintendo that they would double down on with Donkey Kong Country. Um, Super FX games, guys, what do you think about them? Were you excited when you saw Star Fox's paper airplane flying across the screen uh, and and, uh, amongst a bunch of uh, rectangles, I guess? I think so. I participated in the Super Star Fox weekend, which was sort of like their after launch period. It was like a tournament. They go to a store and they'd have this competition cartridge and you'd sign up and see who's the best scorer in the world or country. And uh, yeah, they... That was, I, I don't think I really beat the game originally, though. But uh, it, it was fun. Um, it's definitely exciting. I mean, the big comparison point magazines were making was like uh, Silphied on Sega CD. Oh, you're right, yeah. And like I couldn't afford that at the time. So it's like, <laughs> well, I'll stick with this then. Great. I, I mean, I think Argonaut Software, it could have been a much more basic game, but I think they played enough with the idea of a 3D shooter that it wasn't just you um, in a blank space moving around. I love when they yeah. would make you zoom through these they, um, like these, these spaceships, sort of like much like, I mean, it was ripping off Star Wars a lot, but yeah. that was so cool, just like zooming through spaceships and things like that. And that one boss where you're fighting the core of the ship and you, and you fly out of it after it oh, explodes, yeah. like yeah. little touches like that. It looks hideous now, but... But um, I think it was very important for the Super Nintendo to flex its muscles when the Genesis was gaining ground on it. Uh, Jeremy, I feel like you had a lot of PC or Mac experience um, prior to this. This maybe this might have not been as as visually interesting or as mind blowing as it was for us. Uh, what did you think about Star Fox? Um, no, I mean I didn't really have a lot of computer experience okay. at that point. I, I got a computer um, a little after that, and you know played Mist and uh, Spectre and stuff like that, but. Uh, Star Fox, I hadn't really seen anything like that before. Um, it was it was really impressive. I hadn't played you know PC flight sims, and they wouldn't be interesting to me anyway. Um, so yeah, to me it was it was cool. I, I picked up the game as soon as I saw it on sale at Best Buy and um, enjoyed it for a while. I was kind of fading on my my interest in video games at that point. Um, kind of went through like a little bit of a lull in my interest happens from time to time. So um, yeah, that's. Uh, it was. It kind of caught my attention, and then I stopped playing it. Bullet dodge there on the losing <laughs> interest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the Super FX chip was really impressive. I remember being, you know, having my mind blown by by Star Fox. So where it really got me was I feel like you know platformers like side scrolling platformers were the, is it, 
are like this common language that we've we've known since like the 8-bit era. And you can point to certain consoles and what they bring to that formula uh, with every generation. But you know, like Super Castlevania 4, for example, and like having, you know, rotating levels and, and like sort of flipping certain conventions on their head or on their side. Literally. Was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whoa. <clears throat> Strap in, kids. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, uh, like things like that were all functions the hardware could do natively. But you're right, Tim. I feel like it was important for them to put those out there, you right. know, up front. Even if a little, so even if the castle being a level is gimmicky, right? Even if uh, you know the Koopa sprite flying at the screen for no reason is gimmicky, it was like here's a magic trick that won't interfere with gameplay too much, right? Yeah, and we would see more stuff like that with uh, the Super FX2, which I feel like Yoshi's Island allowed me to go on my Yoshi's Island rant for like 40 minutes. But <laughs> it is a crime, a national tragedy that this game is not available, has never been made available since its original release. I do not count the Game Boy Advance port. It's okay. It's not great. And I think we are being robbed as a people by not being able to play Yoshi's Island because just the way this game looks, moves, plays, I feel like it is the logical conclusion to all of Nintendo's 2D platforming up to that point. And the things that FX2 chips, sorry, the FX2 chip does with things that aren't 3D are amazing. Like Touch Fuzzy, Get Dizzy, obviously, but even the rudimentary 3D graphics in the game, they fit in kind of seamlessly with a 2D world because they don't go for things that are that ambitious. Um, that, those are mainly the two games, I think, that show off the chip. What am I thinking of? Am- ambitions or yeah, capabilities? Yeah, yeah that's I think, what I'm looking I think for. Yoshi's Island is a better example for yeah, what exactly. I was trying to get to there yeah. before. You know, maybe you guys are have this amazing knowledge of the hardware and like the chipsets and stuff and I am uh, in awe of, <laughs> of your computer brains but um, I have he, a lot of notes by the way it's, it's great <laughs> but the, the you know the Bowser Jr. fight at the very end of Yoshi's Island oh, like, yeah. do you know how much that relied on on that chip and just being able to pull off the scale of that and, I mean I don't know specifically but I, I think uh, it would be impossible without it I mean right. uh, the, the boss fights especially mm-hmm. are just yeah. a showcase of technology and they very rarely go to the wow wowzers this is 3D it's more like this sprite's gonna get huge or the, I'm thinking of the Raphael the Raven yeah, fight right, yep. where it's like Shades of Mario Galaxy 10 years earlier where it's like you're going to be running around this moon and the, and the oh, sprites yeah. are scaling uh, appropriately based on where you are. Yeah, I feel like every boss they went, they approach every boss like what what trick can we do? Like what magic trick? Like one is like it's going to split into a ton of enemies. Like another one is like using transparencies in a fun way. I feel like they really gave it their all for this game and it's so sad that um, my conspiracy theory is that Argonaut Software has some kind of patent on Super FX chip and its sequel and they might have to pay money to re-release games that use that chip or a program to use the chip. That's just my conspiracy theory. According to Dylan Cuthbert, um, no. in response to me on Twitter, that's not the case. He's, he said there's no... He's not aware of okay. any sort of licensing restrictions. That's weird. Okay. It was just, a, you know, like a Twitter exchange. I'm not so calling knows, him a liar, but, but uh, there, it's very conspicuous. Would you say they call this very conspicuous that this game has never been re-released on virtual console? It could just be something kind? that's too difficult and expensive to properly emulate. Mm, I don't buy that either, but... Uh, it's not, like, coming up with emulation for something like that is not a trivial... Matter. I agree, but I mean, it teenagers it's not like it they out. can just do it for free. I know, but I mean, teenagers figured it out like 15 years ago. Yeah, but they have time and they're not paid. That's yeah. true. <laughs> and hire you know, those Nin- teenagers; they're adults yeah. now. Nintendo doesn't do like, like emulation apps. stuff unless it meets their exacting standards. I don't yeah. understand why those standards include include making you know NES games on Wii U look really dark and muddy. Yes, but. Um, for the most part, when Nintendo releases something, you know, on Virtual Console or, or, or whatever, it's um, it's pretty much impeccable. It's mm-hmm. really, really good. Let's get M2 on a Yoshi's Island port. Yeah, uh, I think they're tied up with Sega, though. But I mean, those bastards. 
I, I don't know. I really feel like it's just a resource issue. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Nintendo doesn't want to just, you know, half-ass it. It's possible, but you're right, Jeremy. I think it could be like, this would cost more money than we would take in reselling Yoshi's Island. But it's there's such, like it, There's uh, like a dozen games that use FX technology. Yeah. <clears throat> and Ooh, let me name drop one game. Stunt Race FX. All right. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm Okay. Vortex. It, it does. <laughs> it does run at ten, 10 frames per second. But I loved it in forty percent of the screen. Yeah. But that game has has great music, great uh, a lot of character based on just the faces of cars, the weird like faces of yeah. cars they make, and <laughs> I, I feel like that could have been a, a made a sequel on N sixty four or something. But that was like a last ditch uh, final use of the FX two chip, I think. Um, no, it was FX one. Oh, that yeah, was how, still FX one. Like how many Star games Fox? actually wow. had the FX two chip in them? Uh, two, two, three. Which one? one of one, one of which only came out in Europe, which is like an Olympics game. Oh yeah, winter, winter games. I didn't yeah. even know about that one. So, uh, so was that in Doom? Yeah. Okay. Doom was FX two. Yeah. I actually I own all the FX chips chip games that were released in America, but they're yeah. just in, like in a pile. I haven't really messed with them. I just wanted to get them because they'll never be like on virtual console. Yeah. So I was like, I want to be able to play these games even if they're not any good, just, you know, for archival purposes. There's something yeah. very cool about that Blood Red Doom cartridge. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah sticking the Doom out. cartridge, it's like, like yeah. uh, it's, that and Maximum Carnage. I was going to say, it's, it's, the, it's, the one, right there. it's the one good red cartridge that you can have. Uh, <laughs> is, is Killer Instinct a black cartridge? I'm trying black, to think of yeah. the many variants, yeah. Mm. Maximum Carnage was red also. Mm. Killer the, Instinct, speaking of video game music before, like, woof. Killer really combos. Good. Yeah. <laughs> was that the name of the Killer uh, Cuts? Killer Cuts. Killer Cuts. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they just released that on vinyl. I didn't yeah, buy a yeah. copy. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure there was a lot of orchestra hits in that one as well. Um, <laughs> so let's move on to other chips. Uh, this gets very arcane and, and granular, but we have the DSP chip, which I think as, assists with like scaling and and moving graphics around in a way that SNES can't natively. Um, there are four different versions. Uh, two, three, and four are used for one game each, I believe. Um, so there are very specific chips that are only used for just one game, which I find amazing. And a lot of these are just Japanese release. Um, yeah, I have here uh, DSP-1 was used for scaling and rotation. So that's how we got Mario Kart uh, for SNES. I believe uh, F-Zero was not using this chip, but um, Mario Kart had more racers, more things happening on the screen. Um, and generally, and uh, it actually had that uh, rearview mirror mode too. So there's yeah. a lot to keep track of in and Mario the split Kart. Split screen in general. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, I just listed some more chips, uh, or just actually games that use chips. So some examples of, that, of games that use chips are Metal Combat Falcon's Revenge, F1 ROC2, uh, Race of Champions, and Mega Man X2 and X3. So um, there aren't like a, a huge amount of games that use the chips. I believe Mega Man X2 and X3 have like these weird rudimentary polygon enemies. Yeah, that, they have. That's yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. Like the the chips basically just allow some like very simplistic polygonal graphics to happen. Yeah. And they also and what's allow- really strange <laughs> is that Capcom took the time to. Uh, do virtual console emulation on those. That's true, yeah. And also, I mean... Like, I never expected those games to come out. And thank God they did because X3, like just a cartridge now sells for like $300. I'm, I'm sure the chip... I mean, I'm sure the chip made it so they didn't produce as many, you know, because they had to pay for the production of Probably. the carts. The Japanese version is still pretty cheap, though. Yeah. Like 40 bucks. But I mean, DSP, uh, Nintendo did bring out Mario Kart on virtual console, so obviously they know how to emulate the DSP chip. Um, are there any, Is there anything else I'm neglecting to mention in terms of chips? I'm th- I think I hit them all. There's nothing that big, really. I yeah, think, I think you hit it all. Yeah, the only, the only, yeah, the next impressive one to the Super FX was the the, the Capcom ones. Yeah, I think the Super FX does stand out though because it is the one that it was actually marketed to consumers. Like the yeah. Super FX games are going to change, and here's how. And I, I feel like 
it could. It wasn't just called the Mario chip originally. I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's so what, that's what's it stood for it. something. It was like Mario. The O in Mario was a zero. Okay. So instead of giving it like the DSP, they gave it like a like yeah. Yeah, market this kind of names, and I think that was important in selling the technology, and yeah. or at least like getting people to be interested in technology at least. Yeah. It's real blast processing. Yes. Yeah. Actual. Yeah, yeah. Something that really existed. The thing about add-on chips is that for Super NES, they didn't play the essential role that they had on NES. Like right, NES, right. pretty much any game worth playing after 1986 relies on some sort of special memory map. Yeah, like chip. any game with a status bar needs like <laughs> yeah. uh, like Mario Three with that with a static like section of the screen that's not moving that like, has its own the, graphics. The fundamental hardware for the NES was so limited that in order to have anything more complicated than Super Mario Brothers, yeah, you needed to have a special add-on chip. Whereas, excuse me, Super NES didn't have that limitation. Um, you, it was, it was it, you didn't need like an advanced memory mapper chip to trick the processor into thinking, oh, this is actually multiple games in one or something. Mm-hmm. They, they weren't dicking around with memory at the, yeah. the system level the way you had to with NES. So, yeah, there are some kind of cool chips on um, <clears throat> on Super NES, the FX2 and, and so forth, but not nearly as many arcane, fascinating chips, I think, as yeah. the, the NES, or actually the Famicom especially. Like, to me, that is just... Amazing. I love learning and reading about those because they did so much beyond what the hardware was ever intended to do. And certainly the FX chip enabled something that the the Super NES could not have done on its own. I mean, with a, you know, like a 3 megahertz processor <laughs> doing 3D graphics, no, that's impossible. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like they, they just served a different function. It was more like crazy high-level enhancements as opposed to like low-level essentials. Yeah, I believe uh, Tales of Fantasia and Star Ocean, some of the the last huge RPGs for the system that were not released here, uh, had special chips in order to increase memory. I think at least Star Ocean had an entire opening song in Japanese. Yeah, so, they yeah. also, like, Star Ocean, I know, had super compressed data. Mm. Um, so That's it had, right, like, yeah. a, like, a real-time decoder in it. It took people a long time to translate it I think, because of I think that. Street Fighter Alpha 2 also had all kinds of yeah. compression going on because it was just like, you know, here's a game that people are playing on Saturn, and let's make a pretty <laughs> decent version of it on Super NES. What? That's crazy. So that game we, amazed me. Which one? Uh, Street Fighter Alpha oh, 2, yeah, NES, Super NES good. version. Yeah. Like, I was really surprised. A roommate of mine bought it, and uh, I was like, <laughs> wow, I... I didn't realize the system could do that. Rare cartridge game with loading. Okay, we are back, and I hope you enjoyed that little announcement I threw in there. And uh, I was going to talk about accessories, but then I realized that Ray did an entire episode about SNES accessories, so you can yeah. go listen to that. That's at Retronauts Pocket Number Nine from 2013. I, I assume it still holds up. But, um, <laughs> I assume so. <laughs> you haven't made any new accessories. No, uh, not There's yet. The HD Retrovision. Yeah, sure. 
But uh, maybe we could talk about, uh, does anyone have a favorite? Uh, I think mine, just this is weird, but I, I do like the mouse a lot, even though it, I used it only for one game. It made me feel like a young professional, like, I've got a mouse for my gaming system. Like, yeah. ooh la la, I'm going to clean my mouse now. And I used that mouse cleaner until mice became laser mice, and then I got rid of it. So up until, like, maybe the early uh, 2000s, I was using that, that Nintendo mouse cleaner. It was you so perfect. You still clean the grooves on the scroll wheel. <laughs> even just <laughs> being true. empowered with the knowledge that you can clean a mouse is yeah. uh, important because... Yeah. Boy, I remember the first time I discovered that. <laughs> and Nintendo just, gave you the power. That's right. <laughs> uh, Ray, or Tim, how about you? Do you have a favorite uh, accessory? Because, uh, again, we covered ev- everything, the Super Game Boy included, I believe. Um, yeah. I mean, Super Game Boy is it. I feel like it's a kind of a cop-out answer, but man, oh, no, no. Like, it was It's just. It was perfect for, for what I wanted out of that system. You know, we were talking about backwards compatibility, and I think I kind of forgot about the Super Game Boy, but I played so many Game Boy games Me on too. That. Yeah. Even though I didn't need to. It just was such a novelty that I mm-hmm. loved it. Yeah. So, uh, Jeremy, would that be yours as well? I, I mean, I feel Super, like you Game like Super Game Boy is the most important accessory in the history of video games. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I say this as a person you. who, uh, <laughs> who uh, does a weekly video series involving video captured directly from a Super Game Boy. So, mm. yeah. Um, I, like, that's made my life better. It's it's amazing, and I owned one back in the day. Uh, I didn't have a Game Boy, but I did get a Super Game Boy, so that let me play stuff like A Link to the Past, or sorry, uh, Link's Awakening, Metroid Two, Final Fantasy Adventure, like all these great game games that I would have missed otherwise. So hmm. yeah, that's just a fantastic accessory. And Ray, how about you? Uh, yeah, Super Game Boy, I suppose. Yeah. I was hyped as that, hyped for that almost as much as the Super NES. Mine is secretly <laughs> Super Game Boy as well. I mean, I had that mouse. I, I did have a lot of fun with it, but I mean... Um, the mouse has a lot of charm, but yeah. uh, the the real killer app, Mario and Wario, did not come yeah, out I know, here. exactly. God damn oh. it. I mean, it was a Game Freak game. Come on. They make yeah, good stuff. Yeah. It's true. So our, our next topic is the SNES CD, and Ray seems to take a special, a certain liking to this uh, topic. Uh, yeah. So like everyone in the 90s, Nintendo wanted to jump on the multimedia bandwagon, uh, but their attempts led to a lot of drama. And we, we talked about how Ken Kutaragi designed the sound chip. So in 1988, that happened, and that kind of sealed the deal between Sony and Nintendo. Like, we want to work together. Let's sign a contract to produce a CD-based add-on. So this contract apparently was signed in 1988, according to my research, uh, which I find strange. Again, I feel like Super Nintendo is such a 90s thing, but they were they were you know spearheading this thing in the late 80s. Yeah. Um, so CES 1991, and Ray, if there are more details, please jump in. This is just sort of like the broad overview because there was a lot of drama, there's a lot of uh, infighting. Um, but at CES 1991, uh, which is the Consumer Electronics Show, uh, Sony introduces you've seen one, you've seen them all. Yes, exactly. Sony introduces a standalone console called the PlayStation. Uh, two words: PlayStation which would play standard SNES games as well as a new CD-ROM format. Um, So essentially, licensing issues sunk the PlayStation. Sony would control the means of SNES CD licensing and production, not Nintendo. And they would have the power of licensing rights. Uh, Nintendo made a mint in the NES era, of course, by being in charge of the means of production. Like, you you had to pay Nintendo to make cartridges. You're very, like... um... <laughs> Getting kind of communist there. What? Very Marxist. No, no. I mean, the means production. of production. I mean, that is literally the means of production. Take isn't it, it back. <laughs> take it back, proletarians. Yes. Uh, cast <laughs> off your chains and and make those carts yourself. But no, essentially, I mean, like. Um, Nintendo, at the at the behest of Yamauchi, the president at the time, they were cutthroat business people. I mean, there was a reason why they were on top, not just because of the quality of their games, but because of their ruthless business practices. And one of those, of course, was like, if you make games, you make them through us. And if you don't, we will find you and kill you, Tengen. I'm looking at you. <laughs> and uh, they wanted to keep this deal up. And that is sort of why I think a lot of the reason why they stuck with the N64, not just because of the tech uh, advantages, there were few, but because, again, we want that cartridge money. We want to make the cartridges. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can get a dollar plus out of those. <laughs> exactly. So uh, literally, literally a day after the PlayStation is revealed at CES 1991, uh, there are some backdoor shenanigans, and Nintendo announces a new partnership with Philips. Uh, Minoru, sorry, Minoru, Minoru Arakawa. Minoru. His, his, his voice is like a tongue, his, his, his name is a tongue twister for me. Uh, he pulled some strings uh, quickly with like European friends in order to make this happen. So literally a day after they announced the PlayStation, the Sony branded Nintendo add-on console that would play SNES titles. Literally and, the day after Sony announced that. Exactly, exactly. Nintendo. Exactly. So a day after, Nintendo's like, nah. We're going to partner with Philips, and this obviously caused a huge split. Um, I guess. Yeah. Oh, sorry. great. Go ahead. I mean, there's got to be more to this. It was a big it. hardware split, yes, but Sony ImageSoft, which was their game company at the time, still existed, and they still made Super NES games. Yeah, Sony's Sony's divisions like they yeah. don't their their hands have no idea what the other hand is doing. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, it's, um, it's a weird little business. It's it's. I think it's important to note that Philips is the other company besides Sony that was responsible for the creation of the mm-hmm. CD format. So yeah, Nintendo yeah. went from basically like one papa to the other papa. Exactly, exactly. One that would give them or, or, or let <laughs> them make dads. more money. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and it, I, I, I want to live in that timeline where the where the PlayStation actually came out. Um, it's probably not too far from our own planet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I want to jump to that. I want to quantum leap into yeah, somebody's yeah. body and experience that. But... So what happened was uh, there was still, like, a contract signed on paper, like, oh, we can't back out of this. So they had to negotiate a deal, and Sony was allowed to produce Nintendo-compatible hardware. But Sony was like, no, we're going to hold on to this for the next generation, and that's essentially how the PlayStation was born. I mean, this is a very—I think the story is very well known by now, but I'm sure that some people who don't know it. Um, the main problem was lots of games were in development for the SNES CD at the time this deal had ended, and they had to be altered as a result. Uh, some notable examples I wrote down here are Secret of Mana. Uh, we don't know what was cut from that game, I don't think, but uh, obviously the way the game flows, there there are some things missing. It feels very, very glitchy. Yes. Like they didn't, I don't know, just like things were taken out and left holes and gaps. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it just feels kind of incomplete. It's a great game, but it definitely suffered somehow. W- were there going to be more controller impu- inputs on you know the, the final hardware? Uh, Probably not. To yeah. I don't think three, so. Three players. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. No, I mean the I've I've touched a Sony PlayStation, and uh, it's pretty much the same thing as a Super NES, but with like the hardware, you know, the, the diskette or mm-hmm. the CD-ROM bay underneath. And it's funny, this caused a lot of delays with some games. One I could find, and it's one game I enjoy, Marvelous Another Treasure Island, which is an SNES action zelda E game, came out in 1996, uh, directed by... Um, A.J. Aonuma. A.J. Aonuma, thank you. This game apparently was in development as early as the early 90s. It was meant to have anime cutscenes starring a different character, but it was eventually reworked, put on the back burner, and in 1996 it eventually released in its in its current form, which is great. I recommend you play that. There were there were several games like you know ports of uh, PC CD-ROM games that were shown off and announced. Was it Seventh Guest? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and Nintendo Power. They were like, yeah. get ready for multimedia. Well, this shit's this happening, be bro. Blood yeah. happening. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Those those were just cut all together. Yes, exactly. And uh, was Nosferatu supposed to be Nosferatu. a CD-ROM game, or was that one just delayed for some just other delayed. reason? Just delayed. Yeah, okay. that yeah. was in the back of. That was gonna be like um, a launch game. Whatever that SNES guide that Nintendo Power put out uh, mm-hmm. alongside the launch was essentially like a sales brochure slash strategy mm-hmm. guide. Nosferatu was in the back. Mm-hmm. When did that game come out eventually? 95. 95, yeah, it was wow. really late. God, it was like a Prince of Persia-ish kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I thought so. 
So even if Nintendo promised an SNES CD in the pages of Nintendo Power, um, it never came to pass. But unfortunately, uh, fortunately for us in the future, we can laugh at it. Philips had the right to produce their own games for the CDI based on Nintendo characters. And we are all still laughing at those Zelda cutscenes, uh, which are all <laughs> available on the internet. Please well, look them up if you haven't. Don't forget Hotel Mario either. Yes, exactly. Uh, if yes. you need help on playing the game, check the instruction manual. <laughs> wow, Ray, were you getting voice work 20 I, years ago? I, <laughs> I studied him well. Was, <laughs> awesome. That was understudy. Yes, uh, the, uh, these games would not tarnish the brand of Zelda or Mario. I feel like the CDI was such an overpriced, strange, weird, edutainment-y a bizarre thing that it didn't reach enough people to have people be put off by Zelda and Mario in these formats. Um, no. And that's essentially the story of the SNES CD. It became the PlayStation, and then the PlayStation would eventually gain dominance for like a decade before yeah. the Wii uh, kind of sunk Sony for a bit. Um, what Did I miss anything here? Um, do you guys have any commentary on this? I find I, this so fascinating. I just think it's such an incredibly speedy timeline. Um, I don't think, you know, none of the significant stuff really got made until the 90s, uh, regardless of what you say about 88 and stuff. So, like, we're talking about a, a period of, like, three or four years until the real PlayStation showed up. And it's like, that's not a lot of time to, like, develop and plan and then manufacture a whole new game console. So for, like, that that switchover from, like, Nintendo to, like, Sony going on their own is, like, crazy to me. And, I mean, it's just... It, it's also like at the same time, media multimedia is booming uh, relatively. I mean, and we have new players like 3DO also jumping in and becoming like a new game console as well. So it's like it's just crazy to me that all that happened in such a compressed period of time, and then Nintendo just kind of like bailed. Maybe Sony being spurned is what made them put their full force behind this because I feel like I don't like, doubt it. But yeah, yeah it's crazy. I feel like with uh, more with Japanese business, this could be a stereotype. I'm sorry if you think it is or if it actually is, but I feel like there's more of a more like honor at stake. And the move they made felt felt like a very cutthroat, like American kind of thing. Even though they were they were very they were very cutthroat in Japan as well. But I feel like there yeah, was a sort of certain yeah. kind of honor loss there between yeah, Sony Japanese, and Nintendo. Japanese businesses revolve very heavily around relations. Yeah. Like, anytime that I've made connections in Japan, it's always not always, but but generally because someone I know or someone I work with, like you know. Uh, whoever, PR or whatever, has taken the trouble to kind of introduce me to the Japanese side of people and, like, to familiarize them with me so that then they're like, okay, this person is, you know, part of our circle and we trust this person, so we'll let them, you know, you know have access or whatever. Yeah, Like, right. that is just very much, like, relationships, handshakes, getting to know people. Uh, that's that's really key to Japanese business. That's not a stereotype. It, it's a fact. Yeah, yeah. And... Yeah, what Nintendo did with Philips was very much um, in defiance of that, which is really strange because Nintendo is in so many ways such a traditional Japanese company. Yes. Much more so than I would say any other company in in the games business. But in a way, it had a lot of power because, you know, that's why apparently Arakawa and Lincoln led this Philips thing because, you know, they still had a lot of power. And also they got Tetris for one thing before that. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So, I mean – and, and, and you know, the Mario and Zelda games on CDI are basically, like, offshoots of the cartoons. Like, they're using that as their model. So that's why they're kind of crappy, and those were American-led things. I think, like, you know, they had a bit more power back then. So, Tim, what was your take on the uh, SNES CD when it was being previewed? I mean, were you – did you have an SNES by this point? Were you like, I'll have my Sega CD, thank you. It you can play Sewer Shark, and I can make a music video. Like, I'm just well, curious. <laughs> that's the thing is, like, I, in retrospect, you know, I, I would love to live through a timeline where this did happen and see how it, sh- it shook out. 
out. Uh, but I'm, I'm happy that it didn't because I remember being, you know, a Genesis kid and not understand, like being interested in the 32X, being interested in the Sega CD and being so fundamentally confused about how these things t- tied into, you know, the systems I already had. I understood an adapter to let me play Master System games. It plugs on the top. I can put this in. It's like putting a, a different nozzle on a garden hose or something. That, for some <laughs> reason, that made sense to me. But yeah. then these add-ons and what they brought to the table uh, was so confusing uh, as, as, you know, a, a younger consumer that mm. I'm glad that those that the Nintendo waters didn't really get muddied by that add-on part of it because yeah. Nintendo to me one something I love about it and and you know as an example of this is like the more recently you know re- announced mini NES uh, classic I think is what it's called where it has like the 30 games in it it's just like this this little tailored um, you know curated device mm-hmm. uh, that is is simple and uh, accessible and I think that adding on an add-on would have just been uh, a confusing mess. Yeah, I mean, I don't think... It already was. Right. <laughs> I don't think a customer... Uh, I don't think consumers are necessarily, like, stupid or ignorant, but they uh, they want to be comfortable with a purchase. They don't want there to be confusion. So I feel like... Oh, man. Like, even naming something a Wii U is too confusing for a consumer. And when it seems relatively straightforward, or even, even, like, adding a number to something is confusing to a consumer. So, yes, having the SNES CD, the Sega CD, the Sega 32X, like, those do not help a consumer be like, I'm making a good purchase, I mean, you know? we talk about that parental uproar about there just being a Super Nintendo. Yeah. Imagine if, you know, they had the choice of the add-on CD drive or the dedicated CD console that also played Super NES games. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> it's Actually, you know, it's interesting. I, I wonder if we're going to be getting into that now, you know, with uh, with you know, the, the new Xbox Scorpio and stuff like that. It'll, it might be a, oh, geez, yeah. It's like a different version of those conversations, uh, but I think that people are way more adept at describing uh, advantages now. I, think they, I, I may have written an editorial <laughs> making that comparison. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to, have to hunt that down. I think it's also, great. It's on usgamer.net. Not everyone has the motivation to do this, but I feel like the information is out there. You can just do a search on Google, like what is this? You couldn't you couldn't do that in a store. You could ask a guy, but he could just try you'd be trying to sell you something. You know, it's you can't really trust the salesperson at all times. So <laughs> well, I that's feel for sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's talk about the fact that the the CD you know resurfaced recently. Yes, I did want to mention there that. were prototype things that sort of floated around in circles and you can see photos of like really weird controllers and stuff that were sort of like you know, that were vacillating between the Super NES and the real PlayStation. Uh, but then, you know, recently we got something that was seemed to be more closer to the final system. It was all because some guy found it in an attic. <laughs> Apparently, there uh, were. This, this could be traced back to Olaf Olafsson. Yes. Yep. So Olaf Olafsson, the guy with the coolest name in the universe, <laughs> yes. by the way. Yeah. I he was. Be him. He was the head of Sony ImageSoft. Yes, that's which right. Which was the game oh, company. God, and then later, Sony Computer Entertainment, when PlayStation stuff was going. And then he, you know, after that all ended, he was, you know, going around building his career. He ended up at a place called Advanta, which was like a financial company, I think. And then they went bankrupt, basically. And they had like a company auction of some assets and stuff. And apparently Olaf Olsson had a prototype <laughs> a Super Nintendo PlayStation, uh, fairly functional, uh, but uh, didn't take it with him when the company went under. And so it ended up in this auction and then in the hands of a guy who used to work at the company, like a maintenance man, uh, Terry Diebold. Mm. And then he just kept it up in the attic for, you know, uh, six or seven years. And then his his son comes over for the holiday or whatever, finds it in the attic, and then just shows it off on on, uh, Reddit, basically. This guy's a little bit younger than us, so he doesn't fully know what this thing is. But everybody else on the internet is like, oh, freaking out. (laughs) Upvote, upvote, upvote. (laughs) Yeah. Upvote and then sell, sell, sell. Like, of course, <laughs> you should sell this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it apparently and I it was a fully functional, not fully functional. Excuse me, partially functional because um, it did it does it did play Super NES games. 
and does boot those up. And yeah. it also comes with a BIOS, a BIOS cartridge for the CD drive, much like uh, you would... Uh, no, never mind. But kind, of like the, kind of like the PC Engine yeah, system yeah. cards. I was thinking Sega, excuse but, me, yeah, uh, so like that. There was no software uncovered for no this, No real, yeah, no actual no, games, right. but... Uh, the boot the boot cartridge was uh, dumped, and you can kind of see a prototype mm. BIOS boot of oh, the UI, or just the just like the actual a very yeah, yeah, just like, like some some options and stuff. Yeah, it's okay, like a text based yeah. UI, but it yeah it yeah. Would, and I I I actually was um, you touched it. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> uh, touched it. Um, <laughs> no, back at uh, never wash those hands again. That's right. Kind of stinky. Um, back at um, by the way, was it was it? yellowed. <laughs> It was yellow? Yes. Oh, wow. Same plastic. What what the hell was uh, Milwaukee? um, Yeah. uh, Midwest Midwest Gaming Gaming Classic. Gaming Classic, yes. Um, I kind of emceed for a public presentation of that. And I think the system was a little worse for the wear because it wouldn't actually output video. Um, (laughs) uh, Apparently, they just uh, had – I haven't had a chance to watch the video yet, but Ben Heckendorn, the guy who does all those amazing, like, modded systems and hacks and things like that, uh, took it apart and I think got it working again and yeah. talked about the workings of it, like what's inside and, yeah. and really kind of broke it down. So I'm looking so, forward to watching that. I skimmed through it uh, silently. I didn't have audio on it, but it, there was like a uh, specs comparison. And you can see like uh, in terms of raw numbers, things like megahertz and RAM size and stuff, it probably would have outdone the Sega CD. Uh, of course, it's like the actual systems themselves. It does some things better and some things worse. But I think, yeah, it probably would have done some cool things mm-hmm. that the Sega CD couldn't have done. I Who hope, knows what? <laughs> I, I mean, I assume there has to be software for it somewhere out there, maybe in someone else's attic. God knows if that one prototype could play it. But there yeah. ha- there should be another prototypes. I mean, th- it has to exist somewhere. Am, am I just crazy? Or I, is, I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, yeah. like I said, there was at least – there was some other weird prototype that didn't look anything like this one. It was like a big gray charcoal braid – Gray brick thing, um, mm. but the thing about this 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 newer one is that it there was photographic evidence of it, it had shown up in like a book about Sony and industrial design or something like You're that. Right, yeah. So that's why people recognized <laughs> yeah. it and were like, "Holy shit, you need this!" Uh, but yeah. yeah, but but functionally, the machine is basically like a Super Famicom mounted to. Uh, you know, like it looks like a washer dryer unit kind yeah, of. Yeah, I mean, way. you you would see, uh, you know, a good comparison would be the Famicom Disk System. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Or even better than Nintendo sixty four DD. Oh yeah, which we'll talk about in the sixty four. They did not sixty four episode. Yeah, um, but yeah, that's um, it's like kind of a, a an all in one. It, it uses standard Super NES uh, controllers. The the controllers that came with it say like PlayStation on it, yeah. But they are Super Famicom controllers, mm. and they you can it's interchangeable. You can use like regular Super Famicom controllers. It you know boots up regular Super and, Famicom I mean, games. And again, it's just it blows my mind how close it got. We could have had it. Yeah. Apparently, it they, they produced two hundred of those units. Yeah, yeah. And they were all recalled and destroyed. But Olaf Olafsson, <laughs> I guess, was just like, "No, it's my my desk accessory." That's or sneaky devil. Thank God. Yes. So you know, something <laughs> like way, that happens all the time. He hasn't shown up at all since. We haven't heard a peep from him. <laughs> he's, he's been silent. Apparently, the Diebolds reached out to him, and he just hasn't said anything. Yeah. So. Who that, knows? That's awfully suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's perhaps ominous. Yes. Yamuchi isn't uh, that. He's, a, he's an assassin now. Yeah.
Oh my goodness, yeah. So we need to move on to console wars, uh, covered in the book Console Wars, of course, but <laughs> also the real thing that happened in the 90s. And um, what happened was, I, I think Nintendo, uh, being a very Japanese company, was not prepared for the brazen assault against them, launched mainly by Sega of America, which Sega of Japan was not very happy with. I mean, if you read the book, and there's a lot of great information in the book, even if you don't like how the story is told, there's still a lot of great information in the book, by the, by the way. But... Like, they directly attacked Nintendo, and that was something that, like, oh, I can't believe you did that. And on the other hand, Nintendo had a policy of never acknowledging their competition. Like, if you listen to our uh, Nintendo Mania episode from three years ago, we we listened to, a I believe, a 2020 piece about the NES. You'll notice that there is no mention of any other system. The Genesis existed, so I feel like Nintendo was like, if we're going to work with you... We are the only thing that exists. And, and I did. we did episodes on GamePro TV and Nick Arcade and on those. There are Nintendo games, but Mar- Nintendo published games are not on those shows. So I feel that, like, we will only work with you if we are the only game in town. And that was their, uh, that was their sort of strategy in, in terms of dealing with the media. But they were not used to having to actually respond to competitors saying, you know, screw these people, like, we're better. Yeah. And that's essentially what started the console wars in general, just Sega being like, you're the giants, we're taking you down. We're first to the market with a 16-bit console, and we developed this guy named Sonic the Hedgehog, which is way better than Mario, not really, but... It's still impressive if you're a kid in 1991 and think Mario's kind of fat and lame and uh, Sonic is totally badass. Uh, I mean, it, it, it worked on me. Like, Sonic the Hedgehog <laughs> is the reason I'm sitting here. It, it yeah. almost worked on me, to be fair. Like, I had a TurboGrafx-16, and um, I got an SNES for the summer, uh, for the December of 1991 Christmas, or 1992, rather, and I was really eyeing Sonic. I'm like, could he be cooler than Mario? <laughs> I mean, like, what, what was your take on it, Tim? Like, the, how did you view Sonic the Hedgehog? I mean, it was... Uh... It, it was it was mind blowing. Like, at the time, it was you know our, our family got uh, Genesis when it was it was repackaged with Sonic in '91, right? And uh, and yeah. then that was what what drew me in. You know, it was as colorful as you know Super Mario World in my eyes. Like it was it was it was rivaling those that feel. But it, it did de- it definitely had like a different edge to it. I feel like um, just slightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, Sonic's idle animation, right? Like yeah. this guy's got an, he has an attitude. You know, Mario. As much as I love him, like he's he's kind of a he was kind of a cipher at the time. The you know? Graphics like, are hipper. The music is yeah. hipper. Oh yeah, the music's I, great. For as much as I love Mario World, it is kind of a it's a it's a game that I like how it looks, but it is sort of a plain looking game in terms mm-hmm. of what they could have done with Mario's animations and with like things moving in the background and things like that. Like Sonic is just a very beautiful game to look at. I don't yeah. like how it plays nearly as much but it is very upfront like very pretty yeah I you know ended up buying a Super NES uh, I was well aware of Sonic at that point I'd borrowed a friend's Genesis he had Sonic um, and I loved the way Sonic looked and sounded I liked mm-hmm. you know the gameplay but it didn't have enough substance for me like Super Mario World really hit the spot that I wanted like I, that's my you know I, I like that better than Super Mario Brothers 3 let the, the, the debate rage forever <laughs> um, but I was kind of embarrassed to like Mario, like the the marketing definitely uh, had its hooks, and I was like, "Oh, Mario's kind of lame and, and boring, but I like this game. It's really good. <laughs> I can't stop playing it. I want to find all ninety six exits." And then the- so you know, eventually, you know, the 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 play of the thing uh, trumped out for me over the the, the visuals and the sound, mm-hmm. but. Um, yeah, I, I can't deny Sonic's appeal. Yeah. But ultimately, like, I felt like if I was going to spend money, I wanted something that I could really sink my teeth into. And I just knew from history 
that Super NES would would give me that that experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I I mean, I I wasn't convinced by Sonic because I played a lot of it at a friend's house. I was like, oh, I can play through this game in like half an hour, and you don't go back to levels. And I, I love Super Mario World a lot more, so that kind of convinced me. You gotta get all the me. Chaos Emeralds. <laughs> that was too hard, right? <laughs> I could get all the exits in Mario World. I could it's not, not as get hard all the as ninety six exits. <laughs> for some <laughs> reason, that, that's not hard for me. But anyway. Getting all the Chaos Emeralds in two is way harder than it was. Oh yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. that's true. Ugh, Especially yeah. if you're playing with Tails, he's Ugh. he's a mess. Yes. But uh, I mean, like the Genesis definitely had more grit, I feel like, uh, at least aesthetically. You know, you had Streets of Rage and uh, Altered Beast and stuff, and these just felt darker. I, they, I think they were literally darker than, you know, stuff like Mario <laughs> World, but, yeah. but also it had that 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 tone to it. Um, I don't know, growing up, looking back, and like, the way people remember console wars, and I feel like I grew up in a, a an era that would have been, you know, ripe for that. But I just always had the a- attitude, and I think this has followed me till today, is just like, well, why don't, let's just have all these things. Let's just play yeah. everything. This is great. It's wonderful that these things have totally different uh, libraries and, uh, and and sort of, you know, even similar games. You guys talked about Aladdin recently and, and the differences between, you know, the the Genesis and the Cap- and the uh, and the Super Nintendo one uh, that was made by Capcom. Uh, I just love that you could have it all. So the Oppos- you know, the sort of opposition, the, the the clash, it never really resonated with Yeah, me. I mean, I don't think I ever internalized it and made it into this tribal sort of thing where it's like, you've got a Genesis, no. I hate you. It was more like, I prefer the Super Nintendo, I, I like how these games look and sound and play better, but my friend has a Genesis, I'll go over to his house, play all the games I can't play, and they're mm-hmm. fine. I'm not going to ask my parents for this. I'd rather have more SNES games, but these things can coexist, mm-hmm. and uh, that was my attitude. I mean, we should have, we should have gotten Kohler on this, uh, this episode <laughs> because he still has that that console war internalized. He was giving kids yeah. swirlies in, uh, <laughs> in fifth grade, like say Mario's better. Jeremy, what you said actually just made me think <laughs> of. Uh, like the idea of going from Super Mario World and you know having that be sort of your core platformer for the series on Super Nintendo and going over and checking out Sonic and playing around with it like I think that 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 leap would be way harder than you know for me growing up and playing a lot of Sonic and then like looking at Mario and being like oh but this is platforming you know what I mean like it it, it would, mm. would be harder to go back I think mm. um for sure, because I Mar- Super Mario World is like the best side-scrolling platform that's ever been made. So, and wow, so, <laughs> I thought I had good things to say. More about hammers it. dropped. <laughs> so Sega, really, I mean, uh, part of the only way I took this personally was when Sega would openly insult you if you like yeah. Game Boy, or openly insult you mm-hmm. if you like Super Nintendo games. Like, why would you want to play Mario Kart when you can play? What was what were they comparing it to? I forget. Sonic. Really? I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not another racing game. There was a lot of disingenuous advertising. I mean, that's the point of advertising. But in this case, it was like we've got blast processing, which really doesn't exist. Um, of course, we've we've talked about that before. But they were just convinced with showing you like we are cool, we are cutting edge. The SNES is slow and dorky, full of these colorful games for losers, and we're totally badass and ready for the go-go 90s. Um, <laughs> and uh, Nintendo eventually tried to combat this, Nintendo of America at least. They're like, you yeah. think you've got it going, buddy. We're going to do this our own way. And they, they mm-hmm. launched the Yoshi's Play Yoshi's Island makes fat people explode. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the Play It Loud campaign, which has some great commercials, and it's like Nintendo really wanted to be as edgy as Sega but couldn't quite do it and didn't really fit their image. I feel like there is a commercial out there with the Butthole Surf for song in it advertising Nintendo games and, that and they bleep, the one. They Nintendo's bleep. 90s ads are the epitome uh, of they're so uh, 90s I love what's them. up fellow kids or yes. well, <laughs> I oh, sure yeah. love those How damn video do? games <laughs> yeah. from my perspective I think they worked for uh, that first year they did it which was you know Mortal Kombat 2 and Donkey Kong Country that stopped. That hit a wall once Kirby Superstar came out, yeah. and they had to apply that crap to a Kirby game. Yeah, again, like Jeremy said, uh, it, there was a lot of tone deafness with how their ads were treated. Like, 
Yoshi's Island, one of the cutest, cuddliest, beautiful, like whimsical games ever, advertised in like something that we would be on Ren and Stimpy or something like that. Like, someone like, jumps in with a guitar. Yeah, <laughs> like they wanted to be gross out, badass. Uh, they wanted to be true butthole surfers of the console yeah. world. Get your Dutch angles. Yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, it, everything looked like a, like a '90s music video, like stock footage of like the bridge shaking and like the guy getting hit with a cannonball. <laughs> like, I mean, that was in every music video. It was in all the Nintendo yeah, ads. Just yeah, like that yeah. overuse of stock footage. Um, Green Jelly, the console. Yes, exactly. Uh, hey, Maximum Carnage pops yeah, up again in this exactly, episode. Um, exactly. So, I mean, it doesn't need to be told here, but I will tell it. And uh, Sega was eventually outdone by Nintendo because Sega had to try harder, and Nintendo really didn't. And they and they actually tried smarter. And instead of developing the SNES CD, other add-ons, they're like, we're going to fake it. We're going to fake it. And this is something Nintendo has done a lot over their history. They convinced us that the SNES had the power of SGI workstations, when really they mm-hmm. created graphics on one of those and made them into animation made a gifts that they turned into Donkey Kong Country. And that, I mean, that's essentially what Donkey Kong Country is, right? I mean, yes. it's just like I made a gif of this 3D model and I stuck it in an SNES game and that's that's essentially it. But that was enough to convince people like, let's hold off on this, this tech, guys. We're going to keep our SNESs. So Donkey Kong Country was the original Tumblr shitpost? Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, especially the, the awful cartoon. <laughs> Which, uh, I think I need to do an episode about that. So, yeah. Again, <laughs> Can you make a whole game out of a Tumblr? Let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> but again, Jeremy, we talk about Kirby Nintendo. Nintendo looking for cheaper solutions to uh, address technology possibly moving on before they're ready. And uh, we're going to talk about that with a punch-out episode soon. But that is how Nintendo wins, by being cheaper and smarter, for the most part. I mean, obviously they've had a few losses recently, but the Wii was a huge win and it was the cheaper, smarter idea. The SNES is nothing without its games. Um, I, I whipped up a very brief list of original games that I feel are the 10 best. Um, maybe you guys can just pile on if you think I'm missing anything. And I did have to exclude some games because it's like I can't have like five Squaresoft RPGs on this thing. So you in, could. Yeah, I could, but that would be unfair. So in well, short, my, okay. my, my, in, my improper list is uh, my, my first cheat is Mario All-Stars plus Mario World, which was only a pack-in. But god damn it, how great is that? <laughs> Uh, Chrono Trigger, Super Metroid, Yoshi's Island, Link to the Past, Earthbound, Mega Man X, Super Mario Kart, Secret of Mana, and Super Punch-Out. I admit Super Punch-Out is a personal favorite of mine. Yeah. That is my top 10 original (laughs) SNES games. What is your favorite SNES game I either mentioned or didn't mention, and why do you think it belongs in the SNES pantheon to be remembered for all time? Maybe we'll start with Tim. You're you're the guest, the special guest, at least, and our, our new guest, so... What SNES game is your personal favorite, and why should people play it? Yeah, Sega Boy. I mean, it's, it's come on, Sega Boy. Oh boy, oh, I'm getting flashbacks. My favorite, <laughs> uh, uh, favorite NES game is Somari, right? Name yeah. three good Super NES games. It, it, it 
I mean, it always comes back to Super Mario World for me. Yes, uh, okay. It's, that is it. I mean, I have such vivid memories of, you know, like I was always looking over the fence at the greener grass of the Super Nintendo and Cousins not letting me play play it for like five minutes and then I couldn't play it anymore. And it was until I finally like sat down in a hotel room and my parents <laughs> bought me the hour of like, you know, hey, you can play a little bit of Link to the Past, a little bit of Super Mario oh, World. Uh, that's only what, $8 a minute. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And Super Mario World was like absolutely it. But like other, other favorites that really come to mind, like... Blackthorn was actually on that. Uh, oh right, that, the Blizzard that selection. Game. Yeah, yeah, Blizzard or it was that was after the Silicon and Synapse name switch, right? Because it happened during this console, mm, didn't it? Was it? I think so. I think it, it might, might have been, been yeah. era. But anyway, that that uh, Contra, <laughs> Contra Three uh, is is way up there for me. Um, and then of course Turtles in Time, which is like another one of those great examples of. Like growing up playing Hyperstone Heist and being like, it's pretty much Turtles in Time, right? Like, yeah. I got it, guys. Like, oh, well, there's no time traveling in this game. <laughs> Which um, makes it way better. Yeah, I admit my list is very safe. I try to make, mm-hmm. them make the safest list possible so your picks can be slightly different. Those are great. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and I will roll with Mario World. Like, we did a whole episode about it. It's one of my favorite ones we've done. And I there's just so much going on in that game. Even though it doesn't look like the most ex- impressive thing they could have made, mm-hmm. um, I feel like it does so much. There's so much to play with, so many different items and tools and tricks and yes. secrets. It's just so great. Uh, Ray, how about you? Like, what would you add to this list, or maybe what would you pick from this list that yeah. could be one of your favorites? Well, Earthbound is up there. Yeah. Uh, I also really like the Goemon games, Mystical Ninja. Oh yeah, uh, and Goemon Two especially, which is only in Japan. But uh, those Goemon games are really pretty. They're really good mm-hmm. two-player games. Yeah, what they are, and I think definitely. you know you should definitely check those out as well. Um, and just so, the other sorts of cutesier games that don't get a lot of love, like Pocky and Rocky, mm. that series, um, Spike McFang. Things like that. Uh, I you know <laughs> I didn't play a lot of like the heavy hitters that everyone else had, like Turtles in Time, even mm. though I, I should have loved You wrote Turtles a magazine time. about all the Turtles. I'm games. talking about back then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now How I dare did. you yes. do improper research, right? <laughs> yes, as an eight year old. <laughs> How dare I? Uh, but yeah, so like uh, I think now I appreciate things uh, like Actorizer more. Oh, man. Even Actorizer 2, I think. Mm. It's like it's a gorgeous game. Um, I really back then I also really enjoyed Final Fantasy 3, 6. Uh, that was like the key RPG for me and what really I think got me into Final Fantasy the most. Even though I played it before the original games and stuff, like that really that, that really dovetailed nicely into being like teenage super Final Fantasy slash anime fan and getting hyped for Final Fantasy VII and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it hit me at the right age too. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, yeah. there's death and sadness and uh, yeah. the world is a dark place now. Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, also, Lemmings. That was like a good rental because hmm. like my friend and I would play the versus mode until like 4 a.m. That's awesome. I forgot there was a versus mode. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, it's brilliant. So yeah, Lemmings is really good for that hmm. too. So Jeremy, what would yeah. you pick uh, that – either is on the list or maybe something that you thought that uh, would be like a better addition. Uh, your list is great. Um, I would add, f- for me personally, the Final Fantasy trilogy. Mm. Uh, I can't pick one of those because all of them, all three are amazing. It's true. Like, I really rolled with Crown Trigger because I feel like it is sort of like, if you were going to play something, I would choose that one just because it feels like the most put together, you know, in terms sure. of design. But I, I would play all of, I would definitely put all the Final Fantasies on here. Uh, Dragon Quest V, which Ooh. I didn't play back in the day, but is a brilliant game. Uh, Soul Blazer, which was the best Zelda clone. Yeah. And um, then as a personal favorite that I realize is kind of a mm. uh, an outside perspective, but I've really grown to love Brandish. Mm, really? Uh, the Solipsist game. Didn't you hate it? <laughs> yeah, or, I did. Uh, okay. Well, no. I, I was recruited by the gaming intelligence agency to write about it for their Gauntlet of Pain fundraiser. 
Uh, the idea being that it's a terrible game that would be painful for me to play. Oh, we but, were all young uh, ones. Yeah, but I mean, I played it and I was like, this is actually interesting and not bad. And as I've gotten older, I've grown to like um, uh, dungeon crawlers a lot more. Yeah. So there's a lot I really like about it. It's awkward, and I like the remake on PSP much better. You should play it, mm-hmm. The Dark Revenant. But uh, it's a good game. And also, it didn't come to the U.S., but Sheer and the Wanderer is still brilliant when they, they ported it to DS in, like, 2009, oh, 2010. Right. Happened, yeah. Man, that game's so good, and I'm so stoked for the upcoming Vita version. Cool. Or Vita sequel, basically. Hmm. You know, you, you mentioned not putting, too, like, mentioning way too many Squaresoft RPGs, but, like, the Super Mario RPG and, and oh, like, yeah. tracing back. Not only is it, like, I think a really fun game, really colorful, uh, you know, a cool uh, gameplay perspective, you know, for where you look at the game for an RPG at that time, but also, I think... I have a hard. I would have a hard time tracing back like a lot of the personality that's been injected into the Mario series over the years with like Mario and Luigi and Paper Mario and stuff. Like I feel like I trace it back to that game. If it does feel um, like the first time they were able to use a lot of text within the within the context of the Mario universe, and maybe right. like I, I we never saw Bowser being a sad sack before. That was a new angle to him, and right. uh, I guess Luigi was sort of like forced out, and that kind of underlined Luigi's loserness and things like that. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, no, I th- I think uh, Super Mario RPG is is getting a lot more respect now uh, as people who grew up with it are writing about it. Yeah, I think, yeah, it connects more with people who are, like, a few years younger than us. And uh, But for me, uh, yeah, it was great. It, like, defined the summer before the N64 came out for yeah. me, basically. So. And, Perfect. I, and I also feel it was uh, Yoko Shimomura's first defining uh, soundtrack that really, that really, that her first sound. Yes? No. <laughs> what? Street Fighter 2, man. That does not sound like a Yoko Shimomura soundtrack, though. I mean, that, that, what, Bob's kind of right. Does, <laughs> I am right. You what know does it. Yoko Shimomura sound like? She's so diverse and so broad in her abilities. I feel like the bouncy playfulness of her of her signature sound. I know that's not all she does, but I, I hear this uh, in Kingdom Hearts and Mario and Luigi I mean, and things like that. Bouncy fun. Like, how is that not the Chun Li theme? I mean, yes, but this was this was her doubling down. I will not budge from this position, Jeremy. Retronauts listeners, tell me, am I right? Because I think I am. Stop bullying Bob. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Leave Bob Mackie alone. So we're, I believe we have to wrap up now, unfortunately. But this has been a great discussion. I feel like it's probably better than the one I did five years ago. I'm more confident, probably too confident. I'm kind of an asshole. But thanks for sticking with me over these five years. I'm just kidding, guys. I, 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 I believe in myself. I'd be offended if I remembered that episode we did five years ago. We, were all, we all sound very sleepy, and I sound very reluctant about everything I say. But I feel like uh, I think I have a, a better grasp on this stuff now. And I feel like it's great that the SNES CD has come into being. Um, you know, and we could we could have at least touched it now. Before five years right. ago, that was not possible. So, yes, thank you so much for listening. And uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter as Bob Servo. I also write for usgamer.net and somethingawful.com. And you can listen to my other podcast, Talking Simpsons. It's a chronological exploration of The Simpsons. Comes out every Tuesday on lasertimepodcast.com. If you like The Simpsons, you should like the show. It's that simple. Jeremy, where can we find you? Um, oh, God. I'm in North Carolina, so come <laughs> on by. Um, you can find me at usgamer.net, on Twitter as GameSpite, and at GameBoy.world. How about you, Tim? Yeah, I'm on, on Twitter as well. It's just at Tim Turi, all in word. It's T-U-R-I. Uh, otherwise, uh, if you swing over uh, CapcomUnity.com, it's Capcom-Unity.com. I am hanging out over there. We're doing cool stuff like sh- trying to get some more streaming going and, and, and other cool things like that. So, And Ray? I'm on Twitter, R-T-B-A-A-A. Uh, I do a podcast that needs to record more frequently called <laughs> No More Whoppers, and that's about it. 
Cool. Well, we'll see you next week with a brand new mini episode. See you then.